Seems like everyone got baptized a little bit today. Am I right? Nice. Joshua chapter 5, verse 10 is where we're going to begin today. If you're in the Pew Bible, it's page 186, or we'll start on page 187, chapter 5, verse 10. We're using the CSB translation. Joshua chapter 5, starting in verse 10. So, the Israelites have been called to be strong and courageous. They have crossed the Jordan River into the land. They're now in the land that they're supposed to take on. God has told them to conquer all of it and that He would be with them. And what now? What plans will they make to conquer the land that God has called them to? How will Joshua's leadership and military prowess be demonstrated? What sort of great plans are they going to bring about in order to conquer the land God's given them? Well, we don't get anywhere at all before God also gives them the plans and the strategy and the answers on how they're going to do all the pieces of this. He not only commands them to go and take the land that He's given them, He also demonstrates that it's not just His land and they're not just His nation, but this is also His war and His battle, and He is the one fighting. Let's read together. Joshua chapter 5, starting in verse 10. Now, while the Israelites camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, they observed the Passover on the evening of the fourteenth day of the month. The day after Passover, they ate unleavened bread and roasted grain from the produce of the land. And the day after they ate from the produce of the land, the manna ceased. Since there was no more manna for the Israelites, they ate from the crops of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua approached him and asked, Are you for us or are you for our enemies? Neither, the man replied. I have now come as commander of the Lord's army. Then Joshua bowed down with his face to the ground in worship and asked him, What does my Lord want to say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did that. Now Jericho was strongly fortified because of the Israelites, no one leaving or entering. And the Lord said to Joshua, Look, I have handed Jericho, its king and its best soldiers, over to you. March around the city with all the men of war, circling the city one time. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carrying seven ram's horn trumpets in front of the ark. But on the seventh day, march around the city seven times. And while the priests blow the trumpets... When there is a prolonged blast of the horn and you hear it sound, have all the troops give a mighty shout. Then the city wall will collapse, the troops will advance, and each man goes straight ahead. This is the word of the Lord for us today. How does this begin? It begins with the Lord, and it ends with the Lord, and the center of it is the Lord's work. First in this passage, at the beginning of chapter 5, we didn't read it, but all the Israelite men are circumcised. 
This is after they cross the Jordan River and are in the land. The first thing God has them do is be consecrated. This particular generation wasn't circumcised like the generation before them while they're wandering in the wilderness, this chapter says, and so they are set apart, largely because the first thing that they're going to do when they enter the land is take the Passover, and you have to be circumcised to take the Passover. So they are set aside. They are consecrated for God. And then what's the first thing they do in the land? They take the Passover. It's beautiful, isn't it? The symmetry of this. What did they do leaving Egypt but take the Passover? And so as God is delivering them from Egypt, He gives them the celebration to remember how the angel of death is passing over them, how God's judgment is coming down on Egypt, but it's not going to touch even a single one of them. They're going to kill a lamb. They're going to eat it, all of it, the whole family, and they're going to take its blood and smear it over the doorposts. And while they eat this meal, they're to do it standing up. Now, if you're like me, that's every meal. I just sort of eat like a horse. And, uh, but they do it standing up with their shoes on, with their staff in hand, ready to go. They're going to be ready to leave right then and there because the Lord is going to deliver them. And it's just like God says, the angel of death comes into the land of Egypt, and as judgment, the firstborn of every household in Egypt is killed. But the angel of death passes over the houses of those who are under the blood of the Lamb, the Israelites. And then even that very night before morning, the Egyptians say, go, get, leave, do not wait, don't linger, get out of here. Uh, scripture tells us uh, in, um, in Exodus that they leave, there's this interesting note, they leave even before their bread has risen for the day. So, like, they're making biscuits for breakfast, you understand. And, and the, the bread hasn't been risen enough. And so, they just take the bread wrapped up in their clothes, in their, in their proving bowls. They just take it and they take it with them, even uncooked because of the haste that they're going in. Then the Lord feeds the manna throughout the wilderness, and now here they arrive in the promised land. This manna, which was a kind of a grain that they were to make bread out of themselves, God provided for them leaving, God provided for them through the wilderness, and now they're in the land, and they're observing the Passover again to remember how God brought them out on this journey and to proclaim again that even as they enter into the promised land, and they are going to be in many ways God's judgment against an evil people who are in the land, Yet, God's judgment is going to pass over them because of God's grace alone. You'll also, the eating is important here. The manna had to sustain them, but now that they're in the land, they're not going to have manna anymore. Every morning they would wake up and they would see this, these flakes, this piece of grain, something like a coriander seed, but white, and they'd, they'd pick it up and they'd crush it and they'd make cakes out of it, and it sustained them for 40 years. Every day, God provided for them, and now they're here in the land the manna ceases. Is that good news or bad news? It's good news, because now they're just going to start eating the food of the land. God provides for them because they're in the promised land. Surely Israel is going to be working the land, but at the moment, this land is so fruitful here as they walk in that no work is happening. They don't have to work the land yet. They just go and pick it. The food is everywhere. The land is just as lush as it was promised to them. You're to think back to the Garden of Eden where they don't have to work the land. They're just there in the land of God's presence, and all they have to do is walk over to a tree and pick what they want to eat, and God provides for them. That is how it is when they walk into the land, this beautiful scene 
where God had provided for them, and God had provided for them, and now God is providing for them. And it gets better every step of the way. This is what it is to follow the Lord. God provides, and God provides, and God provides, and someday we will enter his presence in its fullness, and on that day, God will provide. I feel like we could digress on a theology of eating right now, because I'm always hungry, but also because this is exactly what happens when they enter the land, they eat. When Adam and Eve are in the garden, what do they do? They eat. Jesus rises from the grave. They think maybe he's a ghost, but what does he do? He sits on the seashore and he eats with the disciple before he goes to the cross. He celebrates the very same Passover meal with his disciples, and he shows them that Passover meal, that was all to point towards me. I am the lamb who is going to be slain, and if my blood is over your life, then the wrath of God has passed over you too. And death no longer holds any threat to you because in Christ there is life for all of us. So we could talk about eating. But rather, just contemplate the grace of God and say grace and thank the Lord when you eat. And look forward to that day when Christ returns, brings heaven with him, we feast together, and it is God himself who is serving the meal. They eat. They're also across Jordan in a way that's now going to make them vulnerable. You'll recall last week when we read it, uh, when they go across the Jordan River, it's not like pulling up your pants high and wading across a stream. The Jordan River is a good-sized river, and where they're crossing, it's in flood condition this time of year. So it is a massive, over-flooded river that they are crossing, and God miraculously stops the water, and it's the only way they can get across. And once they're across... The water is back in flood condition. They are, at this point, committed and very vulnerable. There's nowhere for them to go. And in a very real way, they can look back behind them and see the running river and realize that they, they are entirely in God's hands. They were always entirely in God's hands, but now they could see the river behind them. And no, there is no turning back for any one of them. They must go forward. Then the commander of the army of the Lord appears to Joshua. It's interesting, Joshua is near Jericho, it says. He can see Jericho, the city. He is close enough to need to be weary himself. That's how close he is to Jericho. And a man shows up with his sword drawn. And who is Joshua but not the commander of the army of the Lord? I mean, Joshua is the one that God has called to command the armies and to lead them, right? There's a job title for that. It's commander and that's the one Joshua has. But then he sees this man with a sword drawn, and that man says, I am the commander of the armies of the Lord. It's like a doppelganger. <laughs> Who's the real one? But Joshua knows immediately which one's the real commander of the army of the Lord. And Joshua himself bows down, knowing that he has seen, though it looked like a man with a sword to him, he has seen the Lord. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk and about what this is, who this is. Is this the angel of the Lord? Is this some angel that commands the Lord army, or is it something else? And it seems from the passage that in one way or another, this is God himself, not an agent of God. How? I don't know. God does what he wants to. 
But this is the only time. There's plenty of angels that show up in Scripture. There's only a couple of times in Scripture when somebody has to take off their sandals because it's holy ground, and there's only one person that makes everything holy, and it's God Himself. This is supposed to go directly back to Moses at the burning bush. When Moses doesn't know whose presence he's in until God announces, I am the Lord, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. Joshua, after he is told, after an initial, <laughs> okay, who are you? With the answer in the revelation that this is the commander of the army of the Lord, Joshua falls down in worship, and he offers himself to this God and says, what do you want? I'm in. You might remember Rahab from a few weeks ago, who likewise was already committed to the work of the Lord before she knew what was happening. She had already committed and committed treason against her country and said, okay, I will go with Israel if you'll take me, before she even had a commitment that Israel will receive her. Likewise, Joshua here, as we see throughout Scripture, those who believe, those who are in Christ and approved by God are the ones who say, I'm in. I believe. What do you want? And you've already committed to God even before He tells them the role that they have to serve. This is our lives before Christ. We are the ones who's… Do you have a close friend? Do you have a person who, who you say this to? I do this regularly with friends, church members, who I care dearly about, who come up to me and say, hey, I need something from you. I say, sure. The answer is already yes. Just tell me what it is, and yeah, we'll make it work. And they do that kind of in a humorous way, but also in a way to let them know, of course I trust you. Yeah, we can do this. Whatever you want to do, I already know who you are, and I know from your character that it's not going to be dumb, and it's not going to be silly, and it's not going to be wrong-headed. So the answer is already yes. Let's just figure out the logistics. But this is the way we are to be before God because we know His character. His character is always good, and He always does good things, and He always wants good for us. So it's, it's no challenge for us. Surely it feels like a vulnerable position to be before God saying, I've already committed that Jesus Christ will be my Lord, and now I'm going to figure out what exactly He's called me to do. It's a vulnerable position to be sure but there's really nothing to be afraid of because the Lord and all the things that He calls for us are good for us. The land is an important part here. Surely this land is not holy. This land is owned by the Canaanites at the time, and the Canaanites are an evil people who worship evil made-up gods in despicable evil ways. You're going to see this as the story unfolds in the future, that the ways they worship their gods and the ways that later on the Israelites will begin to worship those other gods are by sacrificing children to them. They do all sorts of detestable things. This isn't an innocent group of people. This is a detestable group of people that God's judgment has finally been stirred up against them. But now this land is suddenly holy because that's a part of our God's character. He makes all things holy. When something is touched by the Lord, it becomes holy because the Lord is holy. There's lots of discussion about uh, land rights right now. Uh, who, whose land is it anyway? Whose land does it be? This conversation happens all, all around for a long time. There's been a discussion about this same land. Does it belong to Palestinians or modern-day Israelis? Uh, in America, in the last five years? It really hasn't been that long. Four years? Three years? It's a really recent phenomenon, but it got awfully popular awfully quick in some circles about doing American land acknowledgments, saying potentially what tribes may have lived in this land and acknowledging it, not, not giving the land back, but acknowledging that somebody else was there. 
You understand these discussions, uh, even in this war that's going on between Russia and the Ukraine. Who, whose land is it anyway? Who's, whose does it belong to? This is an ongoing conversation throughout most nations and borders in all the world, but we have the answer here. All of the land is the Lord's. He created it, all of it. It belongs to Him because it's His. He made it, and He distributes it as He wants to. Further, you'll see they're supposed to march around the wall seven times. That's the command. This is what happens. They march around the wall seven times. They're supposed to be absolutely silent, listening to the trumpet blast. And they march just once around the walls. And you got the people of Jericho inside, terrified. Rahab told us that two weeks ago, that everybody in the land is terrified because of this God that is with them. And then even here it says, Jericho is shut up tight. No one gets in and no one gets out. They have that place barricaded up, and so all the Israelites are going to do is march around it silently, blowing their trumpets. What is this about? Is this an intimidation tactic? I mean, probably not. God's going to win one way or another. He hasn't to declare the intimidation part. To me, all of this looks for the world like an act of worship and a worship service. These whole two chapters are so ceremonial. They're circumcised. They observe the Passover. They go and they march in a procession led by the Ark of the Covenant and led by trumpeters celebrating your music. They are led by music. They are to remain silent. I think this has to do with God's call for them to be patient. Why don't they get it on the first day? God's call is for them to be patient. This is the character of God. What's the first thing that Jesus commands His disciples to do after He appears to them after His resurrection? He says to them, wait. He says, all right, all heaven uh, on earth, all authority in heaven, all of it's been given to me, so here's what you're going to do. Wait on the Holy Spirit to come to you. They have no power apart from the power of God, and so the calling from God many times is to wait. The question is, do you trust God? Can they walk around seven times, this great fortified city, looking at it, and the whole time trust the Lord and keep His commands? But at the same time, this is an act of worship and a worship procession that is going around. It is worship of this God, and it is proclamation that this is a real God, that this is a God who keeps His promise. And they're not just proclaiming it to themselves. The trumpets are blowing, the music is playing, and it's proclaiming to all the Israelites that this God is worth, worthy of being worshipped. And the trumpets are playing, and it's proclaiming to everyone inside of Jericho that God has come to bring judgment on them for their evil. But these trumpets are blasting around and heard even by stories, by all the nations around. Everybody knows that this happens not long after this happens. All the other nations, all the other kings, they know what this God did. Those trumpets, if they didn't actually hear them audibly, they heard the stories about those trumpets. These trumpets of the Lord announcing the presence of a real God have blown on down through history. Even today, we are still talking about this God who is announced and worshipped and proclaimed here. Finally, on the seventh day, they march around seven times. They shout like they're supposed to, a shout, perhaps of joy, an act of worship, and the walls crumble. 
and they go in and they finish off all of their enemies, except for Rahab and her family, who are all spared and brought out and included in the nation of Israel, included in the lineage of Christ from this day forward. This is a beautiful story. It's so powerful. As I said, it's also ceremonial and so worshipful about God. And it's, it's really all God's work. Some people will say to you that David Copperfield is a, is a great novel, and it's one of the best novels, David Copperfield. But what's interesting about the novel David Copperfield by Charles Dickens is David Copperfield's the most boring character in the book, David Copperfield. There's all kinds of fascinating thieves and interesting, colorful characters, and David Copperfield is like oatmeal throughout the entire book and does nothing interesting. And you kind of get that in the book of Joshua. Joshua is celebrated and praised generally, though there are some missteps, and we'll read about those, and there's some mistakes. In general, Joshua is praised as doing right and doing right by God, but Joshua is clearly not the main character of the book of Joshua. The person who is doing most of the action, the main focus of the person who is acting here is God Himself. Joshua gets a command to go into the land. As soon as Joshua gets in the land, he is perhaps scouting himself around Jericho when the real commander of the army of the Lord shows up and says, okay, here's exactly what you're going to do. And the only question for Joshua is, is he going to obey the Lord? It is God's land. It is God's people. This is God's battle. God is the commander. This is God's judgment. And this is most certainly God's victory. Who has the right to bring judgment? It's God does. God is the righteous judge. And what methods is God allowed to use? What methods can God use to bring about His judgment? Whatever He wants. So far in Scripture, we've seen it be plagues in Egypt, His judgment against the Egyptians, the Red Sea, which He parts and then brings crashing down on Pharaoh's army. What methods can God use? He leads His people by a pillar of fire and a pillar of clouds. He provides food for them. He has miracles for them. At one point, some rebellious Israelites in the wilderness are just swallowed up by the earth. Korah creates a rebellion against Moses, and God brings judgment by… what's the method for His judgment? The earth just opens up and swallows Him. It is terrifying, but that is this God who uses whatever methods. Here, the method of his judgment is Israel against the Canaanites. The prophet Habakkuk will tell us later that he is going to raise up the Babylonians as his judgment against the Israelites. This is our God who uses what methods he wants to bring about his judgment. So, given this just powerful passage today, what should we do? Who are we supposed to be? What's the application of it? You know this story. It's a wonderful story. It's powerful. You, you've perhaps always known this one, it feels like. You heard this in a VBS or a children's sermon decades ago. But what are you supposed to do about it? How does this change the way you will live? First, you need to begin to understand that God is also the main actor in your life. Just take a moment and drink that in. You've made plans for yourself. You've had ideas about what your life would be like. How did it all work out for you? 
Is this what you expected right now? To be a Christian is to begin to understand that God is not only, God not only shows up in our life from time to time, but God is the main person moving the world along, all the nations, and our lives as well. And to come to recognize this, you can properly start to follow. And perhaps Joshua thinks, okay, Joshua, you know, has a word from the Lord, be strong and courageous and go take the land. And so Joshua thinks, okay, I've got some plans. We're going to make some. We're going to do some things. We're going to do exactly what God called us to do. But then God shows up with the details too. And God is orchestrating it, all of it, for him. You have to begin to understand that God is the one who is primarily arranging your path in life, not you. Some of you, this became clear at some specific point in your life, when your plans didn't work out, or when things changed, or when you were awfully surprised. When did it become clear to you that you weren't really in control of your life? Was it job loss? A move? Was it a promotion that no one should have expected, and certainly you didn't? Perhaps it was the loss of a spouse. Perhaps for you it was a surprise child. Oh, look, this is not what we planned, but all right, here we are. You have to begin to understand that God is arranging our paths, not us. Has it become clear to you, not only that you're not in control of your life, but that God is the one who is arranging things for you? This doesn't mean God is responsible for the evil that has happened to you in your life. That's because evil people are around you and have done terrible things. But do you know that God can use those things they meant for evil towards you for good? God can bring this about, and He will bring this about. God uses what means He wants to. And the goal that God has, He has made clear, and that is to draw you closer to Him, to bring you into the promised land and relationship that He has for you. God doesn't bring evil into your life though evil is in the world and you live in the world, so there it is. And God's not responsible for your own poor decisions in life. We've all made bad decisions, and we've all suffered the consequences of our own decisions. But to be sure, God has a plan and a purpose, and though He hasn't explained to us which all means or actions He's using, He doesn't always appear. It is possible, though not normal, for you to see a man with a sword standing in front of you to explain all this. But He has spoken to us, and He's spoken clearly to us, and we need to have the same response as Joshua when Joshua says, speak, Lord, I'm ready. What is it that you want me to do? And I'll do it. We ought to have the attitude of the boy Samuel, who as a child in the temple hears God calling him and eventually learns that the response needs to be, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Likewise, you and I with God's very commands in front of us, need to open it up and be able to say, speak, Lord, I'm listening, I'm ready, I'm already committed, tell me the ways that I should go, and I will go on them. God is steering, and God is steering you towards good, and all evil that has been done, God can use for good, and God will bring an end to those evils in His time. You know, there's an application for churches as well. And it comes specifically because this, this sort of same thing happens to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul has plans that he's made. In the book of Acts, he and his traveling companions, they're all planning to go into Asia, which is what we would call Turkey. They're all planning to go into Turkey to share the gospel. 
But there's this Macedonian man who you're to understand is not a man at all. This man doesn't command them to take their sandals off, uh, but this is an agent of the Lord who comes to them and says, no, no, you're not supposed to go into Asia, Turkey. You're supposed to come into Macedonia, northern Greece and Greece. And he sends them over there that way. And this is awfully surprising to Paul, and as you read Acts, this might be awfully surprising to you. Is it that God doesn't want the people in Asia to hear the gospel? Well, that's not it. But it does seem to be that God is already orchestrating His work and in His place. So, Paul then, told obeying the commands of God, goes to Macedonia, helps start the Galatian church, and then will later write the Galatian letter to us. God is already putting together the Bible for us by this move. And it's not that God has left those churches in Turkey or Asia uh, wanting. After all, when you go to read Revelation, John is writing to seven churches that he knows and was a part of in Asia. God is orchestrating. God has His plans. He doesn't explain them, but you don't need them explained. If you know His character, then you can say to God, I'm in. Now, what do you want me to do? And with this attitude, we can follow the Lord. There's an application, as I say, for our church. You know, I I make a lot of plans. We've got a lot of ideas. We come up with, okay, here's what we're going to do this year, and here's what we're going to do next year, and here's how we're going to work things out. And I get to thinking that I, can, I know how everything works here and how everything's going to go, and then I'm quickly reminded that I don't know how everything's working or how everything's going to go. And things simply change, and that's okay because the Lord is the one steering His churches. You know, I can get to feeling like I've been here for a long, long time. So it's about seven and a half years. I'm coming up on eight years that I've been the pastor here, and it's been a pure joy. It's just flown by, and it's been a great time, but it feels like a long time sometimes. And in the history that we know the church, there's only one pastor. Uh, Sometime this past year, I passed David Little in tenure, and I'm coming up on David Lester now. And so, uh, he uh, he served 10 years, and he was the longest-serving one here, and so I'm I'm, I'm headed that direction. I've got a plan. Uh, God will do what God wants to do, but there's the plans. But it's awfully humbling to remember that as long as I've been here, this church is 196 years old. And I've only been the pastor here for 4% of the time in which this church has been here being led by God. You just got to stop and think back like that. How long have I been the pastor here? Like 4%. Nothing. But the Lord steers His churches. And you and I simply say, Lord, I'm in. What do you want? This doesn't mean we sit around waiting, we don't make plans. You are to make plans. You are to work. The Israelites are to silently follow the trumpeting in the Ark of the Covenant around uh, the, the path. Paul has plans to share the gospel. God just changes those plans. So by all means, work hard. Make good plans. Think carefully about what you can do. But then when things change, lay yourself down in front of the Lord and say, okay, let's change then and follow the Lord and not yourself. You have to decide who's really the commander, just like Joshua has to. And you also have to decide whose side you're on. Choosing the Lord's side means obeying Him as precisely as you can. If you say, all right, Lord, I am on your side, then it means obeying Him as precisely as you can. God commands Joshua, Joshua obeys Him precisely. So you have to make a decision about what the Lord means about the things that He's commanded you to do. I have friends who I grew up with uh, at a good little Baptist church, and they have in the last few years left to go join an Eastern Orthodox church. 
you know, some things bothered them about evangelicalism, and they, they liked the idea of the continuity of this church that's been around worshiping in generally the same way since the beginning, and, you know, claims to that and claims to the unity of the church and some sorts of these things, and perhaps they were also hurt by some cads and some hucksters and some frauds and some churches that they were a part of later. But you have to do this likewise. If the Lord has given you commands, then you have to think through and carefully think about what God means for you to do and how He means for you to obey Him in baptism and the Lord's Supper and all sorts of other things. Now, I'm not about to go on another rant about baptism today. Uh, Meredith reminded me, I went on at length about baptism last Sunday, and uh, I kind of got in a little bit of a rant at the end of the sermon if you were here last Sunday about that one. But in my defense, there were like seven cell phones going off at the end of the service last Sunday, and uh, I couldn't, I had no idea what I was talking about. So if I got in a rant and got in a circle about baptism, you know, well, we got there at the end of it. But I do, I do want to tell you this. If you've given yourself over to the Lord, this is the way I want to talk about it. You have to decide what the Lord has command, what it means, the commandments of the Lord, if you're going to actually keep them. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity, and it's delightful and fantastic, and it's held up great over the years. He talks about the idea of a mere Christianity, not a specific, not Anglicanism, not Baptist, just the, the kind of Christianity that everybody has. Uh, Jesus, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ died, resurrected, this mere Christianity. It's a very helpful book for thinking through the basics, but no one can be a mere Christian because you actually have to follow the commands of Christ, and so you have to decide what some of those commands mean. Paul, Paul says to the Romans in Romans chapter 14, he says, who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord, he stands and falls. And if he will stand, it is because the Lord is able to make him stand. One person judges one day to be more important than another day of the week. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day observes it to the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat and give thanks. Paul brings up two very simple issues. Some people say they still have to keep the Sabbath and keep it holy and not work and then also worship on the Lord's Day. Some people say it's wrong to not go to church on Sunday. Some people say one day of the week is more holy than the other. There's other people who say every day of the week is the Lord's. They're all holy. Why not just worship Him, all of them? And Paul's answer here is let each person be convinced in their own mind. They will stand before the Lord. The differences and decisions between denominations and things are not a matter for judgment but they are a matter for you practicing before the Lord rightly. God has commanded you to be baptized. You'll have to decide what exactly that means. The, the goal is not judging others. He also talks about eating foods, whether you're vegetarian or you eat everything. The goal is not judging other people, but the goal is fulfilling the commands of the Lord. So, in conclusion here, it doesn't mean that God's commandments don't really matter. Don't take it that way. Some people have. Some people say, ah, well, you know, some denominations do it this way, some denominations do it this way, it doesn't really matter. No, 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 it matters. But you do need to prayerfully decide what God is calling you to do and keep His commandments if you're going to be the person who says, I will be the Lord's. It also doesn't mean, oh, well, I guess either way is fine on some of these issues. No, no, there's one right way and somebody's wrong. Let each one be convinced in their own mind on some of these smaller issues. It doesn't mean that all issues are of equal importance. Some are smaller and some are larger. If you think that salvation comes by doing religious rituals, you're not Christian. Salvation comes by grace through faith. 
alone. These issues aren't all the same in equal importance, but it also means that this isn't about casting judgment on others. It is rather not focusing on them, but focusing on you, because God has called you to obey Him. So now you must ask God what it means to obey Him perfectly. You must read Scripture, ask God for wisdom, follow His leading, and then humbly be gracious and friendly and cooperative as far as you can to other sincere believers. But you must obey the Lord. You can't throw up your hands and say, well, it could be either way. I'm not going to, it doesn't matter to me. Finally, recognize your worship and proclamation as your greatest strength and as your greatest calling. What are the Israelites supposed to do, this whole army that is prepared to do the work of the Lord? They're supposed to go and have a worship service and a worship procession. That's the work that they do here. You likewise need to recognize your greatest calling and your greatest strength is worshiping and proclaiming God. After all, these are the same things. To worship Him is to proclaim Him. You're familiar with the phrase, oh, I sing His praises, or you sing the praises of something. You know the things that I sing the praises of. Say, oh, I sing praises. That just means you're enthusiastic about something and you like to tell other people about it. Likewise, sing the praises of God to anybody who will listen. Finally, when God appears in this passage, He's holding a sword. Where is that sword pointed? Perhaps, passage doesn't say. Clearly, though, that sword is pointed at Jericho. God is taking His judgment straight against Jericho. Or was it pointed towards Joshua until Joshua makes a decision to bow himself before the Lord? I tell you that the judgment and the wrath of God, the sword in His hand, was pointed at Christ for us. That though judgment of God comes against God's enemies, and though we were all enemies of God, it should please God that Christ should take the judgment and punishment we deserve upon Him on the cross. So that though the sword is in the hand of God today and His judgment is coming, there is an opportunity for you, just like Joshua here, to decide whose side you're on. And everybody who falls on their knees before the Lord and offers their life to Him will be saved of the judgment of God. Come and take the same posture as Joshua. Come and offer your life before God, and then come and fulfill His commands obediently, completely in your life. Come and live a life of trumpeting, of proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord to everyone. Come and live a life of worshiping this God who forgives us. Let's pray. Father God,